Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Professional service firms have undergone dramatic shifts in the last 10 years, and many are predicting a complete disruption in the next 20. As automation, broader access to information, and other trends converge, smart professional services firms are looking for ways to aggressively transform themselves. Perhaps one of the more ambitious firms in this regard is KPMG. And my guest today is Fiona Grandi, National Managing Partner for Innovation and Enterprise Solutions at KPMG. And in this fascinating discussion, we discuss how KPMG organizes itself internally to pursue innovation initiatives, how they embrace a bottoms-up approach to surfacing and executing on ideas, the impact things like automation will have on professional services in the future, and much more. Full disclosure, KPMG has been a client of Digital Intent in the past, and we've been able to see firsthand how Fiona's team thinks about enabling consultants to use technology to deliver better work. And after seeing our team interact with theirs, it was really fun for me to hear directly from Fiona on the why behind what they do and where she sees them heading. Anyways, a fascinating conversation for me, and I think you'll get a ton of practical value out of it as well. And with that, let's go to Fiona. Okay, Fiona, thank you so much for being here. Why don't we start with your role and maybe your mandate uh, at KPMG? What's your group kind of charged with doing? How do you spend your time? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Sean, for talking with me. I'm the national managing partner of a group at KPMG that's called Innovation and Enterprise Solutions, which is a lot of big words, but really what it means is that I have a very fun job and that I get to lead our research and development function at a national level. Um, the cool thing at KPMG is that innovation is defined as one of the firm's strategic objectives, right? And mm-hmm. so it's really, our mandate is set by our CEO in our executive committee. Mm-hmm. So that means innovation is directly tied to our growth, our brand, our culture, try, trying to deliver excellent client service. It's tied into all of those other things at the very top level. So I have a national team um, in all parts of the country, and we do things like research, um, a lot of development, solution development, Mm -hmm. a lot of education of Mm -hmm. our professionals and partners at large. And then we do quite a bit of enablement, trying to bring what has been built into the marketplace. Um, So I have a pretty cool job. One of the the things that uh, you've talked about before and some of the other talks that you've given is this idea of sort of extending uh, from the core. So, so taking what you're best at rather than, uh, just completely doing sort of new to the world, blue oceany types of things, uh, that there are, there's a ton of value in taking what you're already good at and finding more ways to profit from that. Are there any particular approaches to that, that you've found to be particularly effective, whether that's pursuing new segments, uh, with existing service offerings or, you know, layering complementary products in, uh, I would imagine there's a ton of ways that uh, you can add value uh, for clients and, and, and with services that you already have. How do you, how do you think about sort of extending the core? Yeah, I think that it, it's important for companies to stick to what they do best, um, but innovate around maybe the ways in, of which they do things. I think that's really where our network comes in and is super important. There's been a lot of things that we've done where we've had the best domain expertise. If you think about it, there's not a 
Fortune 500 business that we don't understand because we serve every one of them in some way, shape, or form. So what we're seeing now is companies approach us all the time. We've got a new product. We've got a new angle to attack the market. And, um, you know, often I think we have to sort of turn those away and think about where we can leverage our assets, which is really comes from our people. So it's that domain expertise. um, It's our business understanding. And some of the best success that we've had is when we've partnered that up with Mm -hmm. the really excellent big tech skills, and then we can build something really cool together. Yeah, it seems like it would be really easy. I mean, especially in an organization like yours, where you have such broad exposure to client problems, to um, basically every industry, as you mentioned, um, it seems like it would be really easy to do things that seem, you know, one or two percent tangential, but relatively close. And then you wake up 10 years later and you realize that you kind of went off on all these little rabbit trails. Are there sort of rubrics or decision making criteria or like statements of values? Here is Here are frameworks that we can use to kind of evaluate this and just kind of avoid those sort of subtle pivots that could potentially take you down a, a bad direction? Is there anything, you know, sort of formal that the team uses to kind of keep itself honest that way? We, we do use guiding principles around innovation. They're mm-hmm. probably more tactical than what you're describing. Okay. I think it's firm strategy at the top level that helps make those, those uh, uh, guardrails. I also think we've got a really strong um, committee of very senior leaders that help um, jump in when we're making some big shift in innovation. Yeah. Um, they don't get down in the weeds. It's not that kind of oversight. We have that kind of oversight, but we don't use obviously senior leaders for that. And then, you know, that I think that keeps us honest. I think we're also pretty good at unpacking where it hasn't worked well. Mm-hmm. And if I think back over the last decade, there's definitely some things that didn't, uh, you know, Im- impact perhaps our overall annual performance, yeah. but a couple things that we explored and thought, hmm, that's not really in our wheelhouse. Let's not do that again. I want to dig a little bit into portfolio design. And that's something that a lot of folks talk about when they're trying to kind of be innovative is to kind of embrace a a portfolio approach. It's something that we do ourselves. For us, it came from our background in venture, but I know there's a whole bunch of different sort of views on it. How do you think about portfolio design? So things like allocation, the balancing maybe more incremental type innovations versus more transformational type of stuff. How do you how do you approach building or constructing that portfolio? Yeah, I think The best way to describe it, and I'm a huge advocate of the portfolio theory, is that at KPMG, it's really multidimensional. So, for example, it's the build by live strategy, Mm -hmm. right? And the Mm -hmm. fact that we do the combination of those three things as opposed to going just down a path of one. But it's also other dimensions. So, for example, dimensions of the network. It is really, really important for us to have relationships with startups and um, accelerator networks because it informs us on what we're doing. Sometimes we identify targets we want to acquire, um, and and sometimes we identify businesses that we want to jump in and make, you know, small, medium, or very large investments in. 
but it can't just be the startup community. We have to be tied to, you know, those those big enterprise global companies, um, and then all the companies in between. So it's that across the board perspective. I think the other, again, dimension of portfolio taking a portfolio approach is we do big um, innovation uh, work streams, but we also do what is kind of on the ground level with our more junior team members, we, we try to innovate in really small ways as well. Yeah. Um, because it's amazing how that will bubble up and springboard an idea that there's no way we would have, we would have seen at the 50,000 foot level. How about from sort of a governance perspective, for lack of a better word, I mean, you've got thousands and thousands of people all kind of doing to a greater or lesser degree, but, but trying to kind of do these micro innovations and, um, in terms of determining, you said, you know, you have sort of, it sounds like you have some, some software systems or some other types of systems that kind of help bubble that stuff up. But is there, is there a formal process or like stage gating types of criteria for which things you, you maybe roll out more broadly or become, you know, embedded into kind of KPMG's sort of larger DNA? How do you, how do you think about that side of things? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question because innovation really happens in all parts of our, you know, very large U.S. firm, yeah. not just in, in my group, which is innovation. Um, in my group, when we make a investment of dollars um, in some way, that is absolutely well governed with stage gates. We have, um, as I said, a, a committee of very senior leaders that represent all aspects of the firm who help make decisions really about whether we're going to spend the money or stop spending the money. Um, And that works really well. We try not to put too much governance in, as I said, the grassroots activity Mm -hmm. or the innovation that's happening out in the functions. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, we have innovation that's happening out on engagements every day. Rather than trying to um, govern it, I think we're more concerned around trying to capture it. Yeah. Right. So when you have a team, for example, it's a transfer pricing team and you've got someone on the team that says, you know, I think there's a way that we could use a complex analytical program, or maybe we could automate just a piece of this, but we really could do it in a better way. Yeah. Once that engagement is done, my fear is that that's lost. Yeah. And that that's not taken into every transfer pricing engagement. Right. And and so there's governance on the big bets, but for the more of the grassroots, we're really just trying to to gather those insights mm-hmm. and share them out. I know you're interested in in sort of the politics of side of innovation and how you the myriad ways that <laughs> that folks can sort of derail great ideas. What are some of the more common things that, that you see and, and maybe suggestions for how um, other teams can try to navigate that stuff successfully? Yeah, the it's not invented here syndrome. It's just a, it's a real thing. Uh, I was at the Innovation Leader Conference in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. um, we talked about that in some of the groups with representatives from a very broad set of companies and it was amazing how everyone related to this it it, and it's there's sort of two parts to it one is you end up with um 
trying to launch that, something and people don't accept it. That's that's the antibody effect, right? Yeah. But the other thing is you have groups that just don't talk to each other and you end up innovating sort of the same thing or, or tangents of the same thing in many places. And it's so inefficient and slower than yeah. if you pulled together. So um, I know in the benchmark report, which I think you saw that was just yeah. published, yeah. it was an overwhelming percentage, 52% of people saying that this was the biggest impediment was the politics, the turf wars and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's hard to build consensus. It's a mm -hmm. balancing act. If you spend all your time building consensus, you're, you're going to lose market speed. Um, but if you plow ahead too fast and people don't buy in, you, yeah. you'll never launch because you'll get shot down before you can. Um, so some of the things we do to, I, you know, avoid what I call the foot draggers, mm -hmm. <laughs> the ones that just slow you down, is yeah. um, trying to find that common agenda. Mm -hmm. um, you know, articulating what's in it for them. Um, one thing that I talk a lot about is don't expect people to jump in and help you with your innovation area for, for no reason. Everybody is running around with their task lists and packed schedules. You got to articulate what's in it for them and, mm -hmm. and what they're going to learn from it or how they may benefit down the road. That sounds really obvious, yeah. but um, sometimes we don't do enough of it. And then the, the real differentiator for us is that CEO and, and executive committee top-down support that gives us a lot of buffer and permission to, yeah. to do what we want to do. That makes sense. When you're talking about more junior, you know, again, and kind of equipping some of the more junior team members that don't have a lot of political clout. I think when, when folks throw out the word incentives, they are, their mind often goes to, to monetary, right? And um, there's a lot of people inside of an organization that don't necessarily have the power to provide that or a particular initiative just doesn't even there are it's not a direct sort of economic kind of benefit. So what are some of the other types of incentives that people should be thinking about when they're trying to kind of appeal and recruit sort of internal allies that they can kind of appeal to uh, as sort of upside for them getting involved? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different activities that we do. Um, this isn't exactly at the grassroots level, but for example, if you were to file an application for a patent, a trademark, or a copyright, mm -hmm. it, that gets our national attention. We we just um, received a utility patent, and we teed it up. So our our CEO is spending time with the partner that led that. Mm -hmm. It's that important. Mm -hmm. So you can't get better recognition than your CEO, you know, having yeah. a meal with you and thanking you for, for doing what you did. Yeah. Um, other, other things that we have done um, have been really trying to celebrate the success. So the mm -hmm. entire teams, we do do monetary um, awards, um, spot awards. Those are great, particularly with the younger professionals. We mm -hmm. really are pretty liberal trying to share those and recognize um, and not just telling someone you did something great and so here's your spot award but announcing it to the whole group because it's not just encouraging that one individual but telling that whole team or department or network this is the kind of behavior that we um, really celebrate 
you know, along the same lines around, around incentives and maybe some of the tension there, you mentioned automation a little while back. I would imagine in, in specifically in professional services that there would be a tension there around, on the one hand, leveraging automation can increase scale and can improve margin and all of that kind of stuff. And when you're more junior, the incentives are a lot in alignment because you're you're doing a lot of that delivery work, but maybe when you get kind of more senior to the partner level or something like that, that there might be some some hesitation either because it'll push down prices and therefore their book of business or some of those kinds of tensions. Is that a is that a problem that you think professional services firms run into in terms of balancing the need for kind of efficiency improvements and billings? Uh, or or is that is that not really a an issue? Yeah, it's it the reality that professional services, particularly public accounting, that parts of the things that we have traditionally done for clients are being commoditized or being eliminated mm-hmm. with the advent of automation mm-hmm. and you know lear- machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence, all of it. Um, that is not something I think, at least from KPMG's perspective, that we're worried about. Um, in fact, quite to the opposite, we're embracing it. Mm-hmm. Sort of, thank goodness, it's not about ticking and tying anymore. Yeah. I started out <laughs> 24 years ago as an auditor, yeah. and, and I shudder at, at, you know, I'll use a phrase that I love from a colleague. We call it soul crushing work. Mm -hmm. Nobody really wants to do that. So instead of, um, I think the younger professionals at KPMG being concerned that they're going to be out of a job because Mm -hmm. of all these enabling technologies that may, Mm -hmm. may start to do the tasks that they would historically be assigned. I think it's, I think it's the opposite. I think they're super excited. I worry that we get these digital natives coming out of college mm-hmm. and that I worry that we're, we're brainwashing them with our old methodologies. So I'm yeah. trying to, to do the opposite and give them access to um, the software and the programs where they can explore. And we're saying, you guys help us find a, a better way. It's almost like a reverse mentoring concept. Uh-huh. The bigger issue is actually, you know, at the senior par- partner level saying, we've got to let them do this. They have more to teach us than we have to teach them in some aspects of the engagement, right? Yeah, that's really neat. It does seem a lot of professional service firms, I don't know if KPMG kind of fits the description, I would imagine it does to some degree, but there's this sort of up and out or pyramid type of sort of org structure. Are there, it, it sounds It sounds like you're not eliminating or, you know, younger kind of positions, you're elevating them and getting them maybe to think more strategically faster, or maybe it's going to allow the average uh, book of business per partner or whatever it is to grow considerably larger from a scale perspective. But uh, are there any implications in terms of how ladders, you know, sort of corporate ladders work inside of a professional services firm as a result of some of this stuff? Um, yeah, I think there, I think there are some implications from that. You know, when I started out as a professional in our audit practice, you looked at that audit partner mm-hmm. as if he or she were the king or the queen in terms of the knowledge. I never thought I could be as smart as they are. Mm. And in some ways, that is still true today. 
those partners have some amazing relationships and deep embedded trust with their yeah. clients. They are solving some really heavy challenges facing many um, very large organizations. And they're figuring out, but they can figure out their solutions, but they can't put the solutions into practice because the people on the ground have that technical skill. So we, we've been spending a lot of time ensuring that we can bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you one quick example that just happened earlier this week. So major um, news publication is connecting with KPMG to hear about something that we built an enabling technology and Mm -hmm. wants to have it um, demoed to them in one of our uh, labs, one of our ignition centers. And I was reviewing this and saying, okay, who's, who's on deck? Who's the team, the lead person is a senior associate who happens to oh, be a young woman that I know who I think is just awesome. Yeah. I, I love to talk with her because I learn something every time I do. Yeah. But so we have this huge sort of presentation that where we're going to be quote, quoted and published. And it's a pretty important moment. Mm-hmm. And who are we putting forward that young professional? So wow. it's interesting because we've, shifted and we I see a lot more um, training at younger ages now because we know these digital natives can describe how we're building the things in a way that some of our partners or more senior professionals just can't do mm-hmm. but we've but we have to train them up to have those public speaking skills and to have a little bit of the confidence and the presence. So it's this really interesting dynamic. And it's, I think there's a huge opportunity um, as we continue to further bridge this gap, our success is just going to be phenomenal. Changing gears a little bit, you mentioned that innovation benchmarking study, um, which was pretty interesting. From, From your perspective, what was the most surprising thing maybe that you learned from the most recent study that you all did? Yeah, I think there were a lot of findings that made sense, and it was interesting to see the specific data support those findings, Mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot of things that I went, oh, wow, that was totally shocking. I never expected that. So, for example, the challenges around politics and turf wars, you know, we can understand that, and it's great that we now have empirical evidence to, to show that, but the thing that was surprising to me was the percentage increase in the transformational efforts. So transformational as opposed to something that's adjacent or just incremental. Yeah. And it wasn't a big jump. So last year it was 20%. This year it was 25%. For the role model companies, in other words, companies that are more mature in their innovation processes, Mm -hmm. that number actually went up to 35%. So this doesn't seem like a really big difference but what I noticed was that many of the participants, if part of the report talked about some of the things companies have stopped doing or slowed down, and there was a lot of acknowledgement that that third horizon, those really long-term efforts that take time to get to market, that there's less tolerance for that now. So put those two data points together, yeah. more transformational activities, so we're, the companies are taking bigger risks, but it, 
the same time, they're looking at maybe more Horizon 2 or Horizon 1, so yeah. they're expecting faster results. Yeah. The combination of those two data points was really interesting, and I think indicative of just the vast disruption we see across the board in the market. Do you, what, what do you take away from that in terms of part of the reason I, I think that Horizon 3 is sort of named that, and then why they kind of suggest that is, is, you know, you see it in, 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 in startup world and SaaS businesses and, and otherwise, I mean, the overnight success is, is usually a 10 year, it's a, it's a 10 year journey and venture, venture assumes a 10 year time horizon in terms of determining outcomes it seems like putting those two data points together, it sounds like there might be a, maybe a misunderstanding of how, how long it takes for some of those initiatives to, to, to see fruit. Is that fair or, or, or what did you take away from that? Well, I mean, it's hard to unpack without digging into sort of individual companies and individual strategies. And yeah. I think it would be interesting to do that, but I think it's, it's indicative of the increased pressure that yeah. the, the stakes are just getting higher. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we're seeing massive business model shifts mm -hmm. um, at the largest of companies. Mm -hmm. um, but in some, some of those mid-tier companies where uh, the fringes of their business is eroding from the startups and some of those ventures, they're the ones that are starting to take the bigger risk to try to get faster results and maintain a, a speed of growth and not mm -hmm. lose their market share. Yeah. Um, that that's my uh, assumption. I of course yeah. we didn't um, in the survey we didn't we didn't yeah. ask questions in that way. Sure. So. Well, and I imagine too there might be even differences around how one interprets adjacent versus transformational in and of itself. So, I mean, what some what 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 some might consider to be transformational might be much less risky inside of another organization. I wonder if that's part of it too. One of the things I thought was interesting was part of portfolio theory as applied to innovation is that you don't know which initiatives are going to succeed and which ones aren't. But this idea of failing fast that kind of became a very common trope within that sort of universe. And it was related to, you know, if you're going to fail, you might as well fail quickly. But one of the things you all found was that that was not um, something that in your, at least in your role model companies that was valued or that they found to be a particularly important uh, lesson. Uh, wh why do you think that was? And, and maybe what, what did you learn instead that the role model companies did find move the needle? Yeah, that, I think that's a great question. I personally don't love the term fail fast. Mm -hmm. If you're going to fail, is failing faster, failing better? <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I guess the argument is better to, to, to know what's happening more quickly than in a slow way. KPMG is a great example of what I think we saw with some of the survey respondents from the benchmark survey we talk more about pivoting fast and learning fast. And I know that's sort of semantics, but the reality is our teams don't want to talk about failing. Yeah. And we don't want to, we want to analyze it in order to learn, but we don't, we don't really want to dwell on failure. And it's not something that we really um, celebrate. There has been this sort of concept, I think, in the press about celebrating failure. And what we found at KPMG, and I think was indicated in the report from the other participants, was that that 
doesn't drive the innovative culture mm -hmm. that we want. It's um, focusing on having that clear strategy, focusing on have to having top-down support mm -hmm. is just more important than um, talking about failing fast. Got it. So we try not to to get stuck around those terms. I see. Got it. You, you mentioned the uh, you know the build by ally and and the recent example of the acquisition that you all made. One of the big pitfalls that we've seen in the past is when you're trying to fold something back into the mothership, whether that was an idea that was incubated inside of a labs kind of group or skunkworks type of group, or when you're making an acquisition, you know, kind of the propensity for organ donor rejection seems to be pretty common. Uh, what do you think are some of the, the reasons are for that? And maybe what are some of the things that, that you all do to try to increase the likelihood of success when you are trying to fold that, that back into the larger organization? Yeah, I think the, um, the issue is we have such, in a very positive way, such a strong culture in mm -hmm. a way of approaching things. But when we acquire companies, it's because they're different. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. because they have something that we don't have. And so the fear is that in a short amount of time, that small entity in the big enterprise of KPMG uh, loses its own uniqueness that yeah. we were hoping to absorb, yeah. not overtake. Um, I think I think that's part of it, and it's it's hard. We have we fight to incubate business. We incubated our data and analytics business, which is called the Lighthouse, mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, to ensure that it had the permissions to, to approach uh, the market and to develop in different ways than perhaps what was traditional mm -hmm. for KPMG. But rolling things back out into the business is yeah. something we call graduations. And they're really difficult. Yeah. Um, I think we this is an area we've worked really hard and have improved a lot around. My belief is that if you're doing the innovation in the right way, um, there shouldn't really be a rolling back out into the business. There should be this sort of organic merging um, of things. And um, one of the things that we do is we try to graduate mature parts of an area of innovation a part at a time, yeah. as opposed to just this you know, hard flipping of something over the transom and hoping that yeah. it lands softly on the other side. Yeah, totally. One of the related, you mentioned kind of incubating these things. Um, one of the things that we've seen in the past has been sort of assessing performance of these initiatives. And there are obviously differences between what you're doing in the core and then these very nascent initiatives that are going to, again, sort of take time to sort of see fruit. How do you assess them differently and maybe, or, or do you assess them differently? And if so, you know, are, is there, is there any advice that you would give to organizations in terms of giving things, you know, like your lighthouse initiative or things like that, the, the breathing room and the air cover that they need when they're going through kind of that ugly duckling phase and they don't, it's hard to tell what this thing is ultimately going to be while still kind of measuring them and holding them to some sort of, sort of standard for making progress. Yeah, I love the term "ugly duckling" phrase. I might uh, phase. I might use that myself. <laughs> um, we we evaluate everything in some way. 
so at the work stream level or the um, you know sort of the area and then at a major sort of big investment level as well I have a real personal um, f feeling around how you evaluate things um, we we use a lot of balanced scorecards it's a lot mm -hmm. of quantitative measures but the qualitative measures are super important and it's really something I we've worked hard to get our leadership to understand that if we're investing for something that's truly horizon three and long term we yeah. can't talk about return on investment by default if we're getting a return within 12 months was it really transformational right. I, I think you would have to say no right. and so making sure that we've got the right expectations aligned with the right horizon is the way that we do it at KPMG. Um, so yeah, we, we really look hard at the results of all of those near term activities because we're expecting them to turn quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but we have a much different approach to things that are farther out. Um, we definitely identify success. We identify the milestones and the stage gates. Yeah. Um, but we don't get into the real monetary um, projections until we're farther through that innovation development cycle. Yeah. I think a lot of leaders get hung up on how much is this going to make us? How much is this going to save us? Um, and that can, that can really erode <laughs> some of the development if you yeah. are only focused on that. Yeah. One of the things that we've found, not not universally true, but it, it seems like a lot of the sort of lean startup-y type of techniques lend themselves really well to kind of horizon one, horizon two type stuff. So, you know, customer development or design thinking exercises and customer journeys and all that kind of stuff. But some of this transformational stuff seems like it often happens as a result of a new technology kind of coming out and folks really trying to wrap their head around what this thing even could do and almost like a solution in search of a problem, but not, you know, not necessarily in a bad way, but there's a lot of carnage there. I think of like blockchain probably being a really good example of that right now, where maybe in 2018, everybody was super psyched about it and said it was going to change everything. And in 20, you know, you fast forward to 2019. And I think there's this hunt kind of in the dark a little bit still where folks are trying to, they know that there's something there, but they don't know what it is yet. And they're, they're trying to kind of figure that out. So when you're an organization that's wanting to in, invest in something like that, how how do you advise them to kind of poke around those emerging technologies where you're where you're you probably have to staff up in some competencies that you don't already have. You have to kind of position it in a, in, a, in in a way that doesn't look like you're just playing with toys um, and it's not just lighting money on fire, but there's, there's, there's a hope at least that there's something kind of at the end of that tunnel. How do you, how do you think about that side of the thing? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. And I think blockchain is an excellent example and it probably applies to all emerging technologies. The technology itself mm -hmm. isn't the solution. Right. And when we are asked by a client and it's usually to bid on something, you know, here's our problem statement. Please tell us how you could implement a blockchain or distributed ledger for us, um, you know, and here are the parameters. That's usually the, not the type of work that we want to do. That's mm -hmm. not really um, business enhancing and um, game changing. Uh, 
it, it's, it's, as you said, it's sort of that, um, you know, nail looking for a hammer or whatever, <laughs> whatever the phrase, yeah. looking for a nail. Yeah. Um, so it, sticking with blockchain, a great example as a type of technology that is one um, way in which you could solve a problem. Yeah. But you have to have the ability to come at the problem with that design thinking mindset or that there could be a lot of different ways we could solve it. Um, we've had a lot of clients approach us and say, we think we need blockchain because we're looking for the immutability and the trust. And yeah. we've told them this, the current processes that you're trying to replace with blockchain, you're going to spend a lot of money yeah. and it's not really going to be that game changing for you. Yeah. But we understand that you've got this problem. Let's provide a couple other scenarios where technology can help you, but maybe it's not distributed ledger is not the right thing for that. Yeah. Um, and then we have lots of times that clients come to us with a problem, you know, it's an auto manufacturer that has a, has a supplier parts, you know, problem, a lot of different players and um, they don't know how to set up a better system and blockchain is perfect for that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's perfect for that, um, you know, some, some of the contract management and super applicable things, but it's, but it's just one component of a bigger solution. In, in terms of emerging technology or things that would be considered emerging tech, specifically as it relates to professional services, I know we've talked about automation already. What do you think the professional services firm of 2030 looks like? And what, what's, what, is, what are some of the things that you think emerging tech is going to potentially be able to enable there? Yeah, that's a great question. 2030 is a long way out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we may be teleporting by then. I don't know. 20, 2025, you know. <laughs> 2025. Yeah. Um, I, I think that uh, a lot of our traditional services will be automated. I think we'll be doing what I like to call the higher purpose work. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that we're our offering, our asset is our people. Yeah. And I see this already. Our the skill sets of our teams, and I suspect this is true across the board with public accounting firms, is changing dramatically. Mm -hmm. The number of data scientists that we have, and you know, there's so many phenomenal specialized degrees coming out of um, universities these days. You know, I really think our the 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 mix of our people is going to change dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there'll be an emphasis on being a CPA. You know, it's not. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I, and part of it, I think, is because um, a lot of auditing as companies become more automated can be system driven. Yeah. Part of the reason why it's been so manual is companies continue to have tremendous manual processes in their back office and finance functions. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, how the numbers get into the books is humans are tweaking them before that happens. And as long as that continues, you know, we've got to come at it understanding what the humans are doing. Yeah. So the more our clients automate, the more we will automate and, and on it goes. I do think that processing speed is going to change a lot. And when you think about um, 
whether it's quantum or 5G, the advent of that is really going to change the whole game. And that's going to be, I think, really exciting to see. Yeah, it's hard to even fathom what that's going to look like. But yeah, it's super, it is super exciting. Well, this was, this was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed uh, this conversation. For folks that are looking to learn more, either about what you're up to or what, um, about what your group is up to, where can I, where can I send them? Absolutely. KPMG.com. And ha- happy to uh, connect with folks on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, I'm under Innovation Boss. Awesome. Very cool. Well, again, Fiona, thank you so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed this. Um, a lot of our audience is in kind of professional services in various areas. So I think that they're going to get a ton of value out of this. So I think, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Sean. I really enjoyed it. My guest today was Fiona Grandy. For more ideas on how to transform your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And we'd love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Uh, We'll see you next time.